0: Let's pray together before we climb into God's Word. God, first of all, this morning, I want to lift up another pastor and his wife and his family and another church here in town. I want to pray this morning for Steve Lawson and uh, for his family and for Grace Church. Lord, we want to, um, I want to first of all pray for Steve and his worship and just knowing how um, the shepherd... Or shepherds, Shepherd, in his case, influenced the direction of the church. Lord, I just pray for his worship. I pray that it is uh, that you would guard him from just doing a job, but that he would be uh, fueled by marvel and wonder that grace should reach so low for us in the person and work of Christ, that he would be fueled by marvel and wonder that he could be called to doing what he's doing full time. That he would be regularly amazed that you would gather a people around a message from an invisible God about a carpenter who died and rose from the dead. Lord, I pray that he is constantly and consistently and relentlessly renewed as he digs into the word, refreshed, fitted, fueled. And that whether he's standing and delivering and preaching or whether he's at home caring for his family, that worship compels him. Lord, I pray as a result of that, that his family won't get the leftovers, but that his family will see what the gospel looks like in the way that he loves his wife, the way he tends to his family. And Lord, that your church at Grace will be grown with good nourishment, that it won't be a crowd, it won't be an entertained gathering, but it will be a vibrant, salty, bright, living, attentive, aromatic people. And Lord, we pray all of that for your glory. We pray that you will be great, famous, renowned in and among and through that people. Whatever way that we can serve alongside grace, I pray that you would give us a view to that. If it's an official way or if it's just bumping into our neighbors and friends and letting them know that we've prayed for them. Whether it's working alongside them with a spirit of agreement as brothers and sisters in Christ, just pray that you'll give us a view to that, that you would guard our hearts from a spirit of competition in this community between churches, but that we would cheer for your glory and your fame and your renown in every Christ-confessing people in this community. Lord, in these next few minutes, as we climb into your word, I pray that we are fitted and equipped and fueled so that we too will be compelled by worship in our marriages, in our jobs, in our families, in our parenting, in following our parents, in our school settings, in our neighborhoods, Lord, I pray that this time today will be just the right dose of what we need to be equipped for this coming week. We turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. We have two more Sundays in Hebrews chapter 2. This probably makes three months now. I don't know, two, three months, just in these five verses. Verses 14 through 18 are just really, really dense. And I want to assume nothing. We're not in a hurry. Uh, There's not a race. There's no competition for how fast you move through the Bible. So I'm thankful for that. And I find that when I move really slow, when I savor every word and every phrase and every thought, that there's goods there that I wouldn't find if I were in a hurry. So, in some ways, that's y'all are a product, or this journey is a product of the way that I study, and um, I'm thankful that He shows us some good things if we just take our time and savor it. I'll go ahead and read these five verses this morning. I'll give you a heads up to where to be especially attentive. You should be especially attentive to all of it, but or attentive, but especially attentive to verses 17 and 18. It's where we're going to be camping out this morning. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, this being Christ, likewise partook of the same things. This is the go-to passage, or a go-to passage, on why Christ became flesh. Three really awesome truths are developed here. First, so that, or in order that, Through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Pretty profound thing there. He took on flesh to destroy the work of Satan. And it's really the death of death and the life and death of Christ. And secondly, to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that, are or in order that, third thing, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I'm going to give you about a 30-second re- review of the last couple of weeks a couple of weeks ago in dealing with Christ as high priest we first considered his humility in taking on the role of human high priest that in many ways when we consider his role as high priest we have to consider that the divine author didn't just become the story but the divine author became paper and ink And when he took on flesh, he did something that's profoundly radical when you think about that sort of perspective, an author becoming the pages and ink of a book. In some ways, it's like a divine painter becoming canvas and paint. It's quite a stoop if you really consider it in those terms. We considered a couple weeks ago together the shock of the incarnation, The shock of it that he should take on flesh and how that should fuel humility in us. Then last week, we considered his role as high priest, specifically as a merciful and faithful high priest, making propitiation for the sins of the people. We looked at this through the lens of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus, dusty old Leviticus, chapter 16. He served faithfully by making complete and perfect payment for our sins. We met that word maybe for the first time for some of you. Maybe it's been some time you've heard it over and over again, the word propitiation last week. It's a big word. It's not a common word. And I like it because it's not a common thought. It's a great parking place for a profound reality that someone else bore the wrath that you were due. Christ propitiated for us. It's a great thought and a great word. And he did that as the high priest making that offering and being that offering both at the same time. This week, we're going to continue to consider his role as high priest, looking at his mercy and his faithfulness together in verse 18. So I want to take just a moment and sort of unpack verse 18, and then we're going to look at three things that we can walk in or consider in response to this little unpacking. Unpacking is not going to be complicated. It's not a complicated verse. The three phrases that if you're an underliner or a circler, or you have no qualms about writing in your Bible, I don't. Mine is scribbled all over. It's not uh, heretical to do that if you write in your Bible or if you make notes, three phrases we're going to look at in verse 18. First, he himself. Secondly, suffered when tempted. Third, he's able to help. First of all, he himself. He himself is not redundant just for the sake of being wordy. In our ESV, for those of you who have a ESV, it reads he himself. You may have some other versions that sort of uh, reduce that or make it simple or not so redundant. It's redundant there in the original language on purpose. It's redundant for the sake of emphasis. If you look back at verse 14 in the passage that we started reading this morning, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook flesh and blood. Those two words there are used as sort of an emphasis, sort of a marvel. Wait a second. God took on flesh and blood? He himself took on flesh and blood? That's the tone of it in the Greek. And that's why I love that our ESV gives you a heads up. Anytime you see it, that redundant Phrase there. He himself is for the sake of emphasis. And here it is presented again in verse 18. For he himself has suffered when tempted. It should lead us again yet this week to the shock of the incarnation that, first of all, he shockingly showed up and took on flesh and blood as an act of mercy. And then secondly, not only did he show up in flesh and blood, he didn't wear regal robes and serve in a regal high court here on earth, but in fact, he showed up according to verse 18, he himself suffered for our sakes. God suffered? Yeah. God took on flesh and blood and God suffered. He himself likewise partook. I want you to hear this this morning. I'd like if you take notes and if you think about things over the course of the week, let these two thoughts enter your head over the course of the week. Maybe when you're in a trying moment, maybe when things are confusing or difficult, go back to these two phrases. He himself likewise partook, and he himself suffered when tempted. Two sweet phrases. Next, he himself suffered when tempted. I want you to kind of make a little mental note about that type of suffering right now, because we're going to spend a good portion of this morning dealing with that specific type of suffering. Notice, it's not just suffering in general, he's speaking here of suffering when tempted. It's a specific kind of suffering. I'm not going to steal my thunder for later, so I'm going to leave that alone right now. We'll come back to it. And the third thing, he is able to help, present tense, because of his suffering. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, those who are being tempted in this context, in this passage, is the Hebrew church, Some of the passages that you might be familiar with, one you should be familiar with because we preached it. It's been some time now, but back in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay, we the Hebrew church, must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. They're being tempted with not paying attention anymore. Message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. Yawn. I got other things that are more important. I'm going to assume that they're being tempted with assuming that Christ is crucified and risen. They're being tempted with not paying close attention to what they have heard. Another little snapshot of something they're being tempted with in chapter 3, verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, Hebrew church, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. They're being tempted not only with not paying close attention anymore, but they're being tempted with hard hearts. Ah, whatever. Christ crucified and risen. Old news. It doesn't hit me where it used to, like it used to. And then in chapter three, here's another glimpse. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an, un- an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. They're being tempted also with unbelief. You have thought of unbelief as a temptation? You might think of unbelief just sort of this river that carries you away and you're just a passive victim. According to this book, It's something that you entertain, and they're being tempted with unbelief and being tempted with falling away from their Savior. Their parents, their parents had been faithful, and here one generation removed from their parents who likely saw the risen Lord, and they're already in the face of persecution in Rome, considering bailing on the whole thing. Considering going back to Judaism or going undercover and discreet in their faith. Man, the thing that the Hebrews preacher wants them to see and the thing that we can consider this morning is we can consider that Christ is able to help those who are likewise being tempted with unbelief, with not paying close attention, with yawn. He's able to help because he suffered faithfully. I'm thinking about Christ's design, God's design, and us being here in Hebrews, and thinking about every single sermon that we engage. I'm wondering, God, why are we here? And as I think about nine years of serving in Greenville, it be nine years, July, August, time frame. I'm thinking in nine years, I cannot tell you the number of people that I've seen fall away from the faith. I cannot tell you the number of people that I have seen yawn. I cannot tell you how many people come to mind when I share this phrase. People that once had an appetite for the things of God, week after week after week, were relentlessly engaging, writing songs, sending emails, sharing out loud their worship of this good news of this Christ that now. Have yawned, that now have either moved on or are not in the church at all. I can't tell you how many people, this is not as many, how many people have moved from a place of being really quickened to the things of God, very easily moved into a place of going through the motions. This message this Sunday is for those people. It's for all of us because we're all in danger of it. If we're not there already, it could be you that I'm thinking of five years from now, ten years from now, that used to be dining, who now are just back neck deep in the world. It could be me. You hear that? You ever known a pastor that's fallen away from the faith? It happens. It could be any one of us. We need this message for the Hebrew church today for this Crosspoint Church. Now, there's three things that I want us to really consider here this morning if we're going to do this passage justice. First of all, I want to consider this. Christ suffered temptation well and did not succumb to temptation. We don't want to assume that. Let's just consider that for a moment. Let's just examine it for a moment. Turn to Mark chapter 3. I'm going to keep you in the book of Mark. I'm going to look also at Matthew, but I want you to be ready there in Mark chapter 3. As you're turning there, I'm going to share a passage with you that likely, if you're thinking about the temptation of Christ, this passage likely comes to mind. It's sort of a foundational passage dealing with the temptation of Christ. But it's not the only passages you're going to see here in a moment. You just hang out in Mark chapter 3. I'm going to keep you in the book of Mark for four passages. And I'm going to share this additional passage from Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, if some of you are looking for these words in in Mark, we're not in Mark yet. I just want you there to be ready. (laughs) So listen to Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It's clearly a time of temptation. Okay, this temptation has no face. It's not a person or a friend or a family member. It's Satan himself is tempting our Savior, our merciful and faithful high priest. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. This is an important passage for us considering the dominion of Christ Hebrews, we've considered it before, he was much more hungry than Adam would have been, than Eve were. I mean, Adam and Eve probably weren't hungry at all. But Jesus, on the other hand, was very hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Could he do it? Yes. We all know he could. But he answered, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Is that true? Absolutely. But he said to him, Again, it's written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is clearly an occasion of temptation of Christ. He is tempted here with the potential to leave his calling for an easier way. He's tempted here with the idea or the possibility of taking his crown, which you and I both know he's due, without his cross. He's tempted with the crown without the cross. And you have got to know that according to Hebrews chapter 2, regarding our faithful and merciful high priest, that there was suffering in saying no. There's not just a suffering in being hungry, but there's a suffering when you're hungry and you say no to temptation suffering and saying no. The next example where I have you is in Mark chapter 3. Let me give you a little bit of background before I read this passage in Mark chapter 3. The book of Mark is sort of a unique gospel in that it just jumps right into the thick of things. Matthew and Luke especially sort of tell the story, but Mark just jumps right up in it. I mean, first chapter, you're already in to Christ's ministry. Let's just look for a moment at the headings. If you have an ESV, the baptism of Jesus, sort of the inaugural moment for his ministry. The temptation of Jesus, where I just read about in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus begins his ministry. He calls the first disciples. He heals a man with an unclean spirit. He heals many. He preaches in Galilee. He cleanses a leper. He heals a paralytic. He calls Levi. Someone questions him about fasting. He's Lord of the Sabbath. He heals a man with a withered hand. A great crowd follows Jesus. And then he nails down specifically who, by name, his 12 apostles, disciples, are. And then in verse 20, here's the temptation. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat and when his family heard it they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. What do you think about something? Have any of you ever experienced the mocking of family? Do any of you have any idea how that feels to be mocked by family when you're going about God's best and then those the closest to you, the ones that raised him and the ones that were raised alongside him say he's out of his mind. He's been healing people and he's out of his mind? It must have been a temptation to just go back to status quo, making chairs one leg at a time It must have been a temptation to just people please. Because when your family mocks you, that hurts more than anything. When your family thinks you're about something stupid, ridiculous, and meaningless, is there anything that hurts more than that? Can anybody relate to that? Does anybody know how bad that hurts? When those closest to you think you're about something ridiculous. What a massive temptation this must have been. Turn to Mark, chapter eight. Here's the next one. First, we considered his temptation without a face, at least at the hands of Satan. Next, we consider temptation with a face, and it's a family member. And we've got to know their suffering in saying no to temptation. This is next one has a face as well. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, And he, being Christ, began to teach them, he's teaching his disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again, And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things God. Of man. He uses the phrase that is almost basically verbatim what he said to Satan in his temptation. We've got to know that this is connected to a whole other temptation where one of his closest followers says, Jesus, you can't do it that way. You've got to know that it's a massive temptation for a close follower to object to the Father's high and difficult call it must have been tempting to consider an easier way. One that would agree with his close follower. Think about this for a minute. Isn't it tempting if you're close to someone to do it their way, even if you know it's not God's way, for fear that you might lose them? Isn't it tempting? How many young girls dating a young boy, have done something. I'm talking God-fearing boys and girls. Have done something that they shouldn't do, that they know is not God's best, but the boy asked them to for fear of losing the boy. You've got to know this is a temptation. You've got to know it's a temptation to say, no, Peter, get behind me, Satan. And then Mark chapter 14, very familiar passage having to do with temptation as he is facing the cross hours away in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. A temptation yet again for the crown without the cross. Our Christ, our merciful and faithful high priest, suffered temptation. When he was tempted to forsake his calling and take the easy way out, he proved faithful, relentlessly faithful. Now, the second thing, which is building on that first thing of Christ suffering temptation well and not giving in, is that the Hebrew's preacher is appealing to God's people to suffer temptation as their Lord did. He's appealing to a people who are on the bubble To suffer temptation as their Lord did, to be faithful when confronted with the temptation to be faithless, to be incognito, to be low profile, or to be just a good old fashioned Jew and bail on your Christian faith altogether. He reminds them of the faithfulness of Christ and their suffering involved. I was thinking about this suffering in temptation. I'm thinking about all the different types of suffering that we've considered in the last nine years, whether it's been on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning sermon or an email or whatever it might've been. I'm thinking all these sufferings that readily come to mind. Suffering for the sake of the gospel. We have families in the far corner of the field and we might anticipate that they could experience suffering for the sake of the gospel. Very familiar thought to me, likely to you. Suffering when your health goes south. There's very real physical suffering there, often confusion, wonder, frustration that goes along with that. Why am I going south healthy wise? Why is my health waning? What has happened? If i done something wrong, and we think about all the places we can go, we can think about suffering for the gospel, suffering in health, suffering in money. If you lose your job, you're just suffering in that week after week, month after month, not knowing where it's gonna come from i done something wrong. There's suffering that comes from slander, someone slandering you at the workplace or in the neighborhood or in a, a group of friends or relationships. There's suffering that comes with loss and death when someone is snatched from you early. There's very real suffering there. And there's suffering when you're victimized in some way and there are myriad possibilities there. But have you ever considered Suffering in resisting temptation. I have to confess to you, this is a very underdeveloped sort of suffering in my wheelhouse, if it's even in the wheelhouse. It's a very new consideration for me, but it's an important consideration. It's where the Hebrews preacher takes this Hebrews church. He develops suffering. It's part of dealing with temptation. It's part of the faith. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. I want to show you a passage that has been over the years a near and dear passage to me and to my wife. 15, 16 years ago, Christy and I were part of a young married Bible study class, and I was teaching that class, uh, not quite weekly, but almost weekly. I was teaching with a co-teacher, and in a lot of ways, I was doing exactly what I do here, except it was just a Sunday school class, and just trying to walk with people in a meaningful way and be part of their lives. And Christy and I both found ourselves in a place of just sometimes being right on the bubble, dealing with the difficulties of walking with people, even 15, 16 years ago, even in a Sunday school class. And we memorized the passage. We memorized it in the New American Standard, so that's how I'm going to share it right now, but we're going to look at it in the ESV. The passage goes like this. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that set before him endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the father. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I'm telling you over the years that's ministered to me and my wife more times than I can tell you. That passage comes into my mind and heart often. But that's not the whole story. If you hear it right now, you may be like, man, that's like apples of gold and fields of silver. That ministers to me because I just feel like I'm on the bubble, and I feel like I'm about to give up and dealing with this hard situation. It's just difficult, and I feel like I have a fresh wind when hearing that verse. Let's hear it in context. Look at our ESV, Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to start at the first verse. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the whole of chapter 11, the heroes of the faith, let us, Hebrew church, also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. And here's where we started memorizing. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such... I'm going back to my NASB. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. But here's verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point Of shedding blood. You see, that thought is developed that's introduced over there and mentioned in Hebrews chapter 2 about Christ being one who suffered temptation. There's a suffering that goes along with resisting temptation, there's a suffering that goes along and an endurance needed in standing up to sin. That's what this passage is about. As much as I love the thought of it being about just kind of hanging in there and enduring and running the race, it has to do with the race against sin, the lifelong journey of faith that involves resisting sin, even suffering as you do so. That's what this passage is about. Man, think about this. Is this kind of suffering underdeveloped in your faith? Is this kind of suffering having to do with resisting temptation underdeveloped in your faith? Do you expect it from day to day? Suffering in resisting temptation. There's something in us, I don't know what it is, but that says if I'm suffering, maybe it's coming from our very first lessons, don't touch the stove. You touch the stove, you get burned, you did something wrong. If you're suffering, you must have done something wrong. But when it comes to this kind of suffering, it's not doing something wrong, it's doing something right. There's a suffering in saying no to temptation and resisting temptation. Do you expect it? Let me ask you an more, even more important question. Do you embrace it? Are you conditioned for it? Maybe it wasn't mentioned to you when someone's laying out the plan of salvation, it probably wasn't. But it's something you need to hear right now. It's part of the journey. I think about Paul. Turn to 1 Corinthians 9. I think about these words that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. This is so good. Mm, I don't know why. I just love this so much. Paul wrote these words to a church. If you've read 1 and 2 Corinthians you know that he wrote these words I'm about to share with you to a church that wasn't long on resisting temptation. In fact, at the beginning of one of his letters, Paul says to the Corinthian church, I never cease to pray. I don't remember how it goes verbatim, but he said something to the effect of, I enjoy how grace is so on display in you. (laughs) If somebody ever says that to you, just know that that's not so much a compliment about you. Grace is really on display in you. The Corinthian church was a mess. And Paul writes these words to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm gonna begin in verse 24. Do you not know that in a race... All the runners compete, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, implying we exercise self-control to receive an Imperishable wreath. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline in the NASB, how I learned it is buffet. I discipline my body. If you have the ESV, look down at the little note at the bottom of the page. Here's what the Greek verbatim is I pummel my body and make it a slave. And I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul's disciplining his body, his buffeting his body, his pummeling his body seems to be to prepare his body for this suffering in resisting temptation. He seems to be conditioning his body to say no. Think about that for a minute. Do you do that at all? Is there anything that you make a point of to say no to just so you know how the word sounds? Surely you've seen those kids in Walmart that you know never hear that word. They're little monsters. That's why I don't shop at Walmart. I go to Brookshire's. They're little monsters, and that's what we are. If we don't know how to hear this word, if we don't know how to receive it, if we don't know how to walk in a big fat, no. What are some things you can be about? There's some really good things right there in our Bible. There's fasting. You can fast. It's teaching your body to hear the word no, because your body's saying, I'm hungry. <laughs> but you say, no, you're not. I tell you when you're hungry. There are other ways you can buffet your body. For me, it's regular exercise. For me, getting up on a Saturday morning, this was yesterday morning, at 6 a.m., starting a three-hour bike ride at 7 a.m., riding 62 miles, is not fun. (laughs) If you ever see people out riding their bike, they might be smiling, but maybe their buddy just told them a funny joke or something. But they're not really having fun. I promise It's painful. You're pummeling your body. And for me, that's what I'm doing. I want my body to be acquainted with the no. When my body says, man, you sure are tired. You should have stayed in bed. I say, no. Do I say it every time? (laughs) No. When my body says, stop, you don't need to go this far or this fast. I say, yeah, I do. Because I want my body to know that I'm in charge of it. There are other ways you can do it. A good diet? Making the point to eat well. When your body says, I love sweets. I need carbohydrates. Why can I say that so emphatically? Because that's what my body says every single day. I love Cheez-Its. <laughs> <laughs> I could eat a diet of Cheez-Its every day, all day long. But I have to teach myself to say no. Or to hear the word, No. Other things you can do would be a budget. Because maybe your problem is not good stewardship with your body or your diet. Maybe it's your money. Maybe you medicate with buying stuff. And maybe a budget would be something that buffets that temptation. Maybe rationing Facebook. Maybe that's something that you just spend hours on. You're like, man, I've lost control. I just can't stay off this thing. I just have to know what's up with everybody all day long. I have to try and send funny things out all day long. Maybe rationing yourself and saying, I'm going off Facebook for the next couple weeks. Not because it's a sin necessarily, but because I want my body to know what it means to hear a no. I want my body to be conditioned to saying no to temptation. Man, the opposite of resisting temptation is illustrated in our Bible pretty graphically. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Heartbreakingly, graphically, Philippians chapter 3. This is the contra to someone who is acquainting themselves as an act of worship with suffering temptation. Here's the contra, beginning in verse 17 of chapter 3. Brothers, join in imitating me. If we could imitate somebody this morning, let's imitate Paul, who pummels his body so that he won't be disqualified later. Who buffets his body so his body knows how to say no to some things. Maybe even disqualifying Things that could lead him away from the faith altogether. Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. This is faithfulness by imitation. That may be a new novel thought for you. If, if I'm to be faithful, it's gotta be something that wells up within me. Here's a great principle. Imitate somebody who's doing it well. You watching someone else? You seeing someone else who's handling themselves well, who's grown in an area? Imitate them. Faithfulness by imitation. For many of whom, listen listen to what he says. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He's implying that they once didn't. Now they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ... Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. This is the contra of suffering temptation. They are fueled by their belly. These, you got to see, are descriptive. This is descriptive of those who are enemies of the cross, implying that those who are friends of the cross don't operate this way that we're not fueled by our bellies. This type of living never bumps into the suffering that comes from resisting temptation. If you're fueled by any, any appetite you may have, and you give in, you need to know that this never bumps into the suffering that comes from resisting temptation. Their God is their belly. And this is, if we live this way, makes monsters of us all like that kid who never hears the word no. You know that church people can look that way? Look at him. He never hears the word no. You can see it. That's functionally what we are. If we aren't acquainted with the word and if we maybe don't even practice saying no to our own appetites if we don't condition ourselves to that. Now, let me give you a warning. What I don't want to do this morning is I don't want to encourage faithless asceticism. Let me define asceticism for you. It's easy. It's an easy place to go, so pay attention. Asceticism is abstinence from worldly pleasures to attain spiritual or religious goals. This is a significant temptation for Christians. And it's a significant part of Judaism, uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, but it has no appropriate place in the Christian faith. Because there's no religious goal to be achieved in teaching your body. You're not going to reach, reach some new level of Christianity. I am not encouraging some sort of faithless asceticism because that's a monstrous problem of its own. It makes an all different, altogether different kind of monster. That sort of thought seems to dismiss passages like this in Ecclesiastes. There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Have a good meal. (laughs) Enjoy a good drink. What I've seen to be good and is fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God's given him, for this is his lot. Don't become an ascetic. Man, the temptation is there. The preacher of Ecclesiastes says, light is sweet and is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. Ecclesiastes is sort of a melancholy book, but it connects to some really sweet thoughts. That you got a good meal in front of you, enjoy it. Enjoy it. As an act of faith, enjoy it. But acquaint yourselves as an act of worship with the word, no. No. The type of suffering that's dealt with here, that is appealed to in the Hebrews church, is the appeal as Christ's example is a humble suffering. It's worship-driven. It's not I'm going to reach some new place of my Christianity, or I'm going to excel all others in all that I've done. It is a humble suffering. Let me tell you too about this type of suffering. It's not suffering. I'm gonna pick on sweets because that's one of the things that I struggle with, sweets and cheeses. I love sweets. I could eat sweets all day long. I would feel really bad, but I could eat them all day long. And I don't do well moderating with sweets. So this is why I'll pick this example. It's not suffering to resist sweets for a day, even if you really, really, really love them. It's not suffering to resist them for a day, But it is suffering to moderate with them for a lifetime as an act of worship. You got to hear that. You got a day behind you, don't say, man, I suffered for Jesus today. But if over time you see moderation growing, enjoy what he's done in you because that sounds like worship. It's not suffering if you keep from medicating with a big purchase for a day. But when you decide to, as a practice of worship, not to medicate with purchases, but to run to God instead, then you'll experience a slow, dull suffering in saying no to what your body's saying yes to all day long. It's a slow, steady, dull suffering a daily pain that comes from not doing something you're tempted to do. It's not suffering to mention Christ in a dark setting, workplace, or family, to mention them, but there is a slow and steady suffering in daily resisting the temptation to be silent about your faith. That's easy, isn't it? There will be a slow and steady suffering resisting that temptation to enjoy him out loud. Think about suffering this way. Which bridge takes more strain? The one that caves into traffic after a week? Or the one that day after day after day bears up under the weight of traffic and weather and life for decades? That's suffering temptation. Think of some examples. There's suffering in stewardship. There's suffering in resisting the temptation to keep it all. Week after month after year, there's a suffering in fighting the temptation to keep it all. There's a suffering in resisting the temptation to throw an occasional bone or a scrap here and there. There's a suffering that comes in resisting those temptations. There's a suffering that comes in saying no to some things that you know aren't God's best with your time and saying yes to some things that you know are God's best for your time. There's suffering that goes along with that. There's suffering that comes in considering others as more important than yourselves. If you're prepared for it, maybe we're better able to handle it. If we're not thinking like the whole oven and stove, I must have done something wrong. No. I'm doing what my Lord did. I'm suffering temptation. They're suffering and caring for orphans and widows. They're suffering in tending not only to your own interests but also to the interests of others. Hebrews Church and Crosspoint Church, consider Christ's suffering when you're tempted to forsake his calling and take the easy way out. Consider his suffering. Third, our merciful and faithful high priest is able to help when you're suffering temptation. He doesn't just give us this charge. The Hebrews preacher is not one that's in appealing to Christ with no hope or help. In fact, he's saying in the appeal of the model is also the means. There's help in this one who is faithful and merciful. He's able to help uniquely because he knows the pain of it. He knows what it feels like for your family to mock you. And to think your faith endeavors are ridiculous? He knows what that feels like. He knows what it feels like to have a friend come to you and say, man, you can't do it that way. And you realize if you're going to continue on with God's best, you may lose the friend. He knows what temptation feels like. Hebrews chapter 4 does a nice job of developing it. Let's turn there and look at that real quickly. It's the last place I'm going to have you go this morning. It's like salve on wounds, this passage. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hear his appeal to the Hebrew church. Hear this appeal to this church. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have a high priest who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet did not succumb. Man, that's the appeal for the Hebrews church. That's the appeal for this church. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. What you're going through is not new under the sun. The temptation that you may be facing, the struggles that you may be facing are struggles that he understands because we have a sympathetic high priest A woman doctor who is also a mother can deliver a baby. A man who's not a mother, and obviously not a woman, can deliver a baby. But who's better able to sympathize with the pregnant mother? Who is better able to say, I Understand your pain. We have a sympathetic high priest who is acquainted, well acquainted with our sufferings. There's nothing like hearing when you're in a trial, someone who can come and put their arms around you in a unique way, this unique trial for us, it was two visually impaired kids, having someone come alongside us and say, I know how you feel. That's good medicine. Insert your problem in there. If you find somebody else that they have a related issue that God has ministered to them in a way where they put your arm around us, I know how you. It's like medicine. Know that our Savior can say that about whatever your problems are. I know how you feel. No one ever suffered as He did, bearing the sins of the world and making propitiation for the sins of the people in His flesh. No one ever bore the weight of suffering that He bore. And yet he's a bridge ever standing and a bridge that helps us. He's a bridge that we walk across. You see that? He's a bridge for us. While we're passing out the Lord's Supper, I want to deal briefly with how how help comes. So if I can have our men... Brad and the other, uh, the deacons that are here this morning that are able to help pass out the Lord's Supper, as they're passing this out, I want to deal with how help comes. The passage I shared in Hebrews chapter 12 is a great passage, and I'm going to just go back there and read that because there's good medicine right there in how help comes picking up at the passage that we began, my wife and I began memorizing, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, you who are weary from resisting temptation. Consider him, Who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary and faint hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In this passage, help comes with Christ as model. I want you to see that. He's the bridge that never failed. Help comes as model. But if all help was, if all the help was was just a model, we'd be doomed. He's the perfect model for us, and I can enjoy him, and I can pursue him, and I can be thankful for him, yet I still sin. I still give in to temptation. If all he was was model, I'd be doomed, and so would you but he's also means. He's model as the perfect bridge, but he's also means as he becomes our bridge, as you consider him, as you enjoy him when you're resisting temptation, more happens than just considering him and enjoying him. You're caught up and fueled by something called worship, and you're changed. Over time... You're changed. Over time, he transforms you. He's model and means, and you won't find that transformation apart from him. I promise you. Hey, man, I want my marriage to be transformed. I want this addiction to be transformed. I want this life, this thing that I am so weekly, daily, monthly, fail-in to be transformed, you won't find it apart from considering and enjoying Christ. Know it. God won't let you get away with that. I promise you. He's model, but thankfully, he's more than just model. He's means. There's good help in that. And then the passage that I just read in chapter 4 Ends with these words. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Help comes ultimately in knowing. Hear this. Help comes ultimately in knowing that even when we fail, He didn't. Help comes in knowing that your entrance into the throne room will never be based on how good a job you've done in resisting temptation. That should cause you to exhale. It shouldn't make you lazy and say, well, okay, whatever, Paul said, may it never be. But it should let you exhale realizing that you're not measured by your performance, you're measured by his The atonement paid in your place was paid in your place. So on your worst day, you enter the throne room boldly. On your best day, you enter the throne room boldly. Why? Because of his perfection. Because he's the bridge. His bridge never failed. Help comes ultimately in enjoying that we can press on and grab fresh mercies tomorrow morning and try again, yet again, for the millionth time to suffer well when tempted for his glory. Knowing that we walk in his righteousness. Man, that's gotta be help. It doesn't make you lazy. It actually frees you up to serve him recklessly. It frees you up to get up tomorrow morning and grab some fresh mercies and say, I'm gonna set off yet again today and try and live in a manner worthy of the gospel. I'm gonna try and live wholly representing this story that I'm, that is. Caught me up, representing this God who saved me. Knowing all the while, your performance is not the standard, but his performance. Man, there's good help in that. Help comes in entering the throne room boldly. There's ample help here from a merciful and faithful high priest. I wanted you to have the elements in your hand as we considered this last help because I want you to see that this is a weekly reminder of the ultimate ample help that we have in Christ. He's our righteousness. Does that that bless anybody? He's our righteousness. He's the bridge that's never failed. Let's take and eat and drink, enjoying his perfections. Take and eat. Let me pray. <clears throat> God, as we continue on this morning in song and giving and fellowship, Lord, I pray it will be in keeping with what we've just considered. I pray that we will be steeled to expect and even embrace the suffering of temptation. And I pray that what fuels us and compels us and guards us in that and keeps us from being faithless, asceticists, will be the realization and ultimate help that comes in knowing that Christ is our righteousness. That we are measured by his perfections. We are clothed in his righteousness. Father, today we consider him as author and perfecter of our faith. With the joy that set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And is now seated at your right hand. We enjoy him now in song, in giving, in fellowship in the rest of this week. It's in his name we pray. Amen.